Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to Inside China. This week we're talking about how Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow has been received by leaders in Europe, how its achievements are being analysed in Beijing, and how a leader from this side of the world might well have upstaged Xi's efforts to position himself at the head of a new global order and peace broker for the ruinous Russian war upon Ukraine. With President Xi Jinping of China, we have agreed to communicate closely at various levels, including at the summit level. Based on my visit to Ukraine, where I inspected damages by Russian invasion, and exchanged sincere views with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. I would like to firmly communicate with China about Ukraine, including at the summit level. That's Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida speaking in the war-torn capital of Ukraine after making a surprise visit to meet in person with its President Volodymyr Zelensky, just as Xi Jinping landed in Moscow. Now, last week, the images of Xi Jinping with Vladimir Putin catching up like old friends may have dominated the media narrative in the West, but it's that press conference in Kiev that captured the attention of foreign policy specialists in Beijing and China watchers worldwide. But of course, for many foreign policy pundits, it's this hot mic moment picking up some candid comments from Xi to Putin that caused a flurry of hyperbolic headlines. Right now there are changes, the likes of which we haven't seen for a hundred years. And we are the ones driving these changes together. You're going to hear from our Europe correspondent Finbar Birmingham about how these words from C were received in Europe and why French President Emmanuel Macron and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen have both booked tickets to visit Beijing as soon as they can. And things are changing all right. They changed almost as soon as Xi Jinping flew out of Moscow when Vladimir Putin announced nuclear weapons would be moved into the neighbouring country of Belarus. And this week, Vladimir Zelensky has changed his position from inviting Xi Jinping to call him up on Zoom to calling upon Xi Jinping directly to visit him in Kiev in person. But there's also some deeper changes on this side of the world as well, with Fumio Kishida on the front foot in confronting Japan's complex history with South Korea and meeting with India's Prime Minister Mahendra Modi to focus on the challenges of China. In this episode, you're also going to hear some fascinating analysis from my colleague Xi Jingtao about President Xi Jinping's efforts to position himself as the leader of a new global order competing with the one previously dominated by the United States and how Fumio Kishida's diplomacy is forcing Beijing to reassess its history and its foreign policy with Japan and South Korea. There's a lot to talk about. 
Finbar Birmingham is the European correspondent for the SEMP based in Brussels and has been having something of a busy week. But you'll also hear a substantial difference in my voice in this interview because it took part late at night Hong Kong time in order to fit in to Finbar's busy schedule. I started by asking him to take us back to last week and that hot mic moment between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Finbar was covering the European Union Leaders Summit at the time those comments made headlines. And I asked him how that went over with those in attendance in Brussels. Well, I think there was not really that much surprise. I think that the, the fact that Xi was going to, to Moscow and the fact that China and Russia are very close and has been internalised and digested in large parts of Europe. So I don't think anybody was hugely surprised that the the meeting and the state visit from C2 Russia reaffirmed that. I think it did confirm in the minds of, of many senior officials that both of those countries want to essentially create an alternative model to the what the Europeans call the rules-based order established after World War II. When European Union, a senior official put it to me, there's, there's a new world order emerging and China's in the driving seat. So all of these... Um, Statements from, you know, the the hot mic moment you mentioned from from C, you know, the contents of the joint statement, I suppose it, it confirmed what they already were fearing here and what they were suspicious of. So there wasn't a great level of, of shock, wasn't to say there were, weren't some strongly worded statements, which is a specialism they, they cater to here in Brussels as the leaders arrived at the summit, criticising it, uh, but not a huge level of shock. What we've seen post that summit is some European leaders taking it upon themselves to to make sure that they're going to Beijing. They see this as a moment to restate their demands from China to not go too far with Russia. You know, they keep talking about these red lines they have. They sort of expect those sorts of moments between Xi and Putin. They sort of expect there to be this high-level pageantry and the, the bromance, as it's, it's often described here, between the two. But what they don't want is to see systemic military support they say they haven't seen that yet. There has been some stories about low levels of, of certain material appearing on the battlefield. There has been some stories about like hunting rifles and so on that have been appearing in the in the customs data. But the consensus here is that the China isn't systemically providing arms that are ending up in the battlefield to kill Ukrainians, essentially. And that, that's what the red line is. And speaking to officials and diplomats in the aftermath of that summit, and in the run-up to a series of visits by the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez, the French President Emmanuel Macron, who will be going with Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the Commission, they, they believe that this message can't be repeated often enough. Their belief is that Xi Jinping is not hearing this from anyone else. In the words of one official, he's surrounded by yes-men, and therefore, even if you don't come back from these visits with a great deal materially, if you go there and you make this case to him face to face, please don't militarily support Russia. It's worthwhile. So that, that that's what sort of has inspired this. They do fear that the Chinese are, are going to be pushed further into the Russian arms by what we see as, uh, you know, we, by the pressure exerted by the United States. And they're quite keen, particularly Macron and Sanchez, to offer some sort of a, a middle ground so to speak, whereby they can have some sort of relationship with China and they can exert some influence over China vis-a-vis -vis its, its uh, relationship with Russia. And it's quite interesting because here we are in a week where you know, Germany is sending tanks into Ukraine, not words we've heard for you know more than 80 years. Uh, was there any word from Germany about the outcome of that meeting or indeed anything to do about Xi Jinping and Putin? 
Not really. I mean, Olaf Schultz was talking about it at his press conference after the summit last week, and he just reiterated what I just said, is that, you know, we, do, we don't see that China is arming Russia. We don't want that to happen. Of course, we're worried about the China-Russia relationship. But there wasn't anything hugely new on there. You know, everybody here has been waiting for the end of the Lianghui, the two sessions in, in Beijing, for the creation of a new state council, for the formal appointment of all of these senior level officials. And that's another reason why we see this scramble to engage diplomatically with Beijing. There are a lot of people in new positions, important people who they haven't really been in front of. You know, you've got a new foreign minister, you know, you've got a new premier, etc. So the German government has reportedly been uh, holding back on its own government to government consultations with China until after the pieces have fallen with regard to the reshuffle of the personnel in Beijing. We're waiting for the German government's new China strategy. Uh, some reporting says that that has also been delayed until after the consultations. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that there was a lot of, you know, quotable lines about the Xi Putin summit. But again, I don't think it was a huge surprise. It reaffirmed everything we've seen over the last year. And you mentioned there the leaders of France, Spain, as well as Ursula von der Leyen, all heading to China very soon, all vowing to speak to Xi Jinping about China's role in not bringing this war to an end, just maybe preventing China from having any role in providing military assistance. You mentioned this idea that Xi Jinping is surrounded by yes-men and it's only some Europeans that can speak the truth to power. What's the agenda here, really? Is there any kind of bargaining chip they have? Is there any kind of trade sanctions they're going to threaten? Or is it just going to be some very polite talk? I don't know what they really have to offer, you know, apart from the status quo, so to speak. You know, China is a beneficiary of the global system. And I think that the Europeans will be reminding them of this. I mean, one interesting dynamic uh, that I noticed in recent weeks, the end of February, China released its position paper vis-a-vis peace in Ukraine. Initially, that was absolutely panned by von der Leyen, by Borrell, Joseph Borrell, the top European diplomat. They said it was pro-Russia. They said it showed that China had already taken a side and, and that they will consider it, but on those terms. You've seen a little bit of a thawing, some softening in the language since then, and when I speak to diplomats from the member states, they say, OK, it's not perfect. It's a flawed document. It does reiterate many of the Russian talking points. But hey, it also has some elements in common with the peace proposal of the Ukrainians themselves. And they, they note that the Ukrainians haven't actually slammed this. Uh, you know, they've they've said it's welcome, even though they don't fully agree with all of it. There is some concern here at being seen to basically dismiss what China is proposing and how that would go down with the global south. You know, commonly the response from, for example, Indian officials and some African governments has been, well, what are you proposing? Why are you dismissing this out of hand? China is seen as and sees itself as the de facto leader of the global south. And for the Europeans to be just dismissing it out of hand, it wasn't seen as a great look, even though there's pretty much across the board, I think people in powerful positions here do believe that it's not a great document that it's very one-sided and that it promotes Russian aims. But I think that they want to be a bit more mindful of, of the optics. And so there's a willingness now to go and test the waters with China in Beijing and say, oh, OK, look, you say that you're serious about peace. What are you going to do about it? I think that's one of the key messages that Macron, Sanchez and von der Leyen will be bringing with them. They, they have noted, of course, the role that China played in the detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia. A lot of surprise about that here in Brussels. 
and you know there is some awareness that that China is trying to step up geopolitically. So I think that that that's one thing they'll be doing in Beijing. They'll be trying to test just how far Beijing's willing to go on that. I'm glad you mentioned that French word détente and that idea that Xi Jinping and China have managed to at least bring Iran and Saudi Arabia to the bargaining table. I wonder how much political capital that gives Xi Jinping as the kind of leader that can bring nations together, given that we're not hearing any of that kind of talk from Biden or anywhere else in the West. Well, I think there's some realism or scepticism about what China's willing to do and how China has, in a sense, been positioning itself as a global peacemaker without following through. The Iran-Saudi Arabia thing did take people by surprise. And I think that there is some willingness to say, okay, let's hear them out. Now, bear in mind, Xi Jinping has still not spoken to Vladimir Zelensky, which is a key ask from the Europeans. Bear in mind that there still is, a, as I mentioned just now, pretty much a core belief here in, in many European capitals that China is pro-Russia. So that in mind, they're willing to entertain the idea that China may be able to help here. But I think that they're quite pessimistic about just how far China will be willing to go. Now, I remember a little while ago where the US President Joe Biden said the 21st century was going to be a competition between the US and China. Right now, we're seeing actual competing conferences where the US and China seem to be dividing up the world between, if not allies, conference participants. We've got this second democracy conference that Biden's running in D.C. We've got the Boao conference happening in Hainan, otherwise pitched as the Davos of, of Asia. Is that getting people talking in any way in Europe? Are people juggling dinner invitations between Hainan and Washington? How's that being played? Not really. Hasn't been on my radar, I have to say. Um, people here are pretty absorbed with what's happening in, for example, in France. You know, there's a lot of interest in the visits going to China, the Israeli protests is a big story here. And of course, Ukraine, you know, as always, and to my frustration, <laughs> sometimes China is a bit of an afterthought. With regard to the, the summit of democracy in the, in the United States, I mean, when I speak to people about these sorts of initiatives, there's always a bit of skepticism because it's almost like uh, you're leaving yourself very prone to accusations of hypocrisy. You know, United States and Europe both have got very strong relationships with plenty of autocratic countries. And, you know, the real politic of how the world turns is that, you know, you can't just be friends with those who agree with you. I mean, if you look at the effort in the last year here in Europe to expand trade relations with the Gulf in order to wean themselves off Russian oil, there's not that many democracies in that region. And so I think that the, all of these things, you know, summits of democracy, you know, there, there's been some effort here since the war began from certain parties to try and pitch things as a battle between autocrats and Democrats. But I don't think that's gained widespread traction because it falls down as soon as you then have to engage with, with a country that is autocratic. And I think that there's generally a little bit of scepticism when people in Europe view those summits of, of democracy and so on. And I don't think it does the US any favours either. Well, Finn Barrett, I know you have to run. You're definitely not catching a train anywhere because I don't think any trains are running in Europe. What's coming up on your calendar? Trains are still running here, Jared, in, in Belgium, <laughs> just about. They, they managed to encourage the drivers. <laughs> Yeah, so things are kicking off a little bit here. Uh, I'm off to the European Parliament now. There is a press conference because this morning at 4am, 
uh, negotiators reached a political agreement to finalise the anti-coercion instrument, which is a European Union tool designed to combat economic bullying. Uh, we talked about it on our old podcast many times. Basically, this is designed to react to things like China's unofficial boycott of Lithuanian goods, as well as uh, things like, you know, Vladimir Putin trying to weaponize exports of energy and Donald Trump's Section 301 trade tariffs. But it really gained uh, traction once uh, people in Brussels and European capitals saw the absolute drop off in Lithuanian goods to China after they decided to allow the Taiwanese to open a controversially named diplomatic presence or trade office, whatever, however you want to delicately phrase that in Vilnius. So that's where I'm off to now. I'm going to be filing a story on that later. It's one that I've been following since it was first proposed a couple of years ago. So very excited to to learn more about what it looks like today. Finbar, you do remind me that it's almost five years since the beginning of the US-China trade war. I will pop a handbag, a children's bicycle uh, and a washing machine in the mail for you for the anniversary. Finbar Birmingham, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jared. Bye-bye. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Xi Jingtao is the South China Morning Post's diplomacy expert and has been writing extensively about Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow and the subsequent events following. Now, it's quite interesting that much of the world has been focused on the US-China relationship and the ongoing narrative of how these two superpowers relate concerning the Russian war on Ukraine. But he's also been picking up on some very substantial movements elsewhere in China's geopolitical sphere, and they're very much worth our attention right now. Jingtao, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Now, we heard from our colleague Finbar Birmingham in Brussels about the European reaction to Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow. Can I start with the immediate aftermath of Xi's visit? Both he and Vladimir Putin made a joint statement that all nuclear weapon states should refrain from deploying nuclear weapons outside their territories. And it looked like Pretty much as soon as she was on the plane back to Beijing, Putin announced the opposite, that Russian nuclear missiles were going to be stationed in Belarus. How is this playing in Beijing, Jingtao? How does this look for Beijing trying to position itself as the peace broker? It's a good question, Jared. I think it's uh, you're exactly right. Uh, it put China in a tricky position uh, because China apparently was caught off guard by Putin's nuke plan. And uh, the United States and, and its allies have denounced uh, Putin's announcement about nuke uh, deployment in Belarus. And uh, President Biden called the announcement uh, dangerous kind of talk and worrisome. And Russia and Belarus are saying that the deployment of Russian tactical nuclear weapons is a response to NATO expansion and this military buildup. I think it's amazing for everyone, including the Chinese government, to see how Putin is able to backpedal on his own pledges about uh, not stationing nuclear weapons abroad, which has been made uh, just a few days ago during his high-profile state visit to Moscow. I think the fact that Putin chose to make public his own his nuke plan in the same week after Xi's visit basically says a, a great deal about um, their much-touted friendship 
Putin's credibility and China's actual influence over Russia. But I think it's a bit, maybe a bit harsh for some to say that Putin duped the Chinese leader again. But it indeed raised a lot of questions about Beijing's ability to ring in Moscow if it is really interested in the peace brokering role on the Ukraine war. I think it's uh, also worth noting that China doesn't have a good record of ringing in its so-called friends and allies, such as uh, North Korea and Iran. That's why it's interesting that Beijing indicated its displeasure towards Putin in its official response on Monday, without directly criticizing Moscow or mentioning the joint statement signed by Xi and Putin. China's uh, foreign ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning said, uh, under the current circumstances, all sides need to focus on making diplomatic efforts towards a peaceful settlement of the Ukraine crisis and work together for de-escalation, adding that uh, a nuclear war should never be fought and can never be won. Zhang Tao, there's a lot of speculation in the Western media about what was and was not agreed to between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. I'm talking about the the Siberia Bee pipeline, uh, speaking about all kinds of things. But now that the dust has settled somewhat from his visit, can I ask you about what, you know, Beijing analysts, your sources are saying about Xi's visit to Moscow? Was it more of a psychological achievement? Was it a diplomatic achievement, a political achievement? How is this being viewed and and what successes are, are being sort of celebrated? I think there are different views and interpretations of uh, Xi's trip to Moscow. Uh, the respected Harvard professor, Grantham Allison, who has popularized uh, Thucydides' trap theory about the inevitable confrontation between great rival powers, described the Beijing-Moscow axis as the most consequential undeclared alliance in the world in the recent Foreign Policy Magazine article. But a lot of questions remain unanswered about what have actually been discussed and agreed upon during the Moscow tour, especially those from behind the scenes, apart from the written statement and the flurry of economic and nuclear agreements. Although some U.S. analysts are saying that Putin didn't actually get what he wants the most, that is China's military aid. But I think Putin has got uh, the political support that he also needs uh, very much at the moment from China. Also, I think it's interesting to see some other comments from Europe and elsewhere saying that uh, Xi's trip has uh, promoted China's uh, profile as a peace broker. I don't know whether it's true or not, given Putin's announcement about his uh, nuclear plan in Belarus. Zhang Tiao, there is one huge question hanging over Xi Jinping since he's returned to Beijing from Moscow, and that is, why hasn't he called Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. What what can you offer on that front? I think it's puzzling for uh, China watchers to understand why Beijing hasn't done so yet. One of the possible explanations is that uh, China is uh, unhappy with uh, what uh, Zelensky said during his meetings with um, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida. Basically, Beijing is, uh, is, is, is very unhappy with Kishida's success in raising concerns with Ukraine's uh, President Zelensky about China's moves over Taiwan. And uh, it was included in their joint statement issued after Kishida's visit. The leaders expressed serious concern about the situation in the East and South China Seas 
and strongly opposed any unilateral attempt to change the status quo by force or coercion. The leaders also emphasized the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait as an indispensable element in security and prosperity in the international community. They encouraged the peaceful resolution of cross-strait issues. And also, I think it's worth uh, worth mentioning that uh, Xi Jinping hasn't spoken to Zelensky since the war started. While he has met Putin several times and uh, kept a regular contact with uh, the Russian leader. I think Xi's Moscow visit and the fact that he hasn't talked to uh, Zelensky yet, I think it's also raised questions about China's um, self-claimed neutrality on the Ukraine war. Zhengtao, you mentioned something there that I think has kind of been missed in this ongoing narrative, I say is the US-China-Russia kind of narrative, and that's the fact that Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has really stepped up onto the world stage and, as you say, made a surprise visit to Kiev, uh, met with uh, Vladimir Zelensky, and then not long after that, dropped in on India's Prime Minister, Mahendra Modi. Both Japan and India have their own border concerns with China, as well as very interesting history with Russia. How is Fumio Kishida's role in these last weeks or two being perceived in Beijing? It's a good question. I think it's fair to say that Kashida has not only inherited Shinzo Abe's foreign policy, but also upgraded, making Japan as the de facto engine of the Indo-Pacific strategy, also promoted by uh, both Trump and uh, Biden administration, and making Japan as real rival to China in regional and global affairs. Actually, Kyoto just reported uh, a three-way security uh, dialogue between the Philippines, the U.S. and Japan involving their national security advisors will probably be held in April. The trilateral grouping is again initiated by Japan and uh, is uh, clearly aimed at China. Actually, uh, Kashida and Japanese officials have been surprisingly blunt about their intentions, uh, which are to boost deterrence against China and to prepare for and prevent a potential military conflict over Taiwan and in the East China Sea. So from Beijing's perspective, Japan's growing support for Taiwan and Kashida's advocacy of uh, Ukraine today, Taiwan tomorrow is deeply concerning. Uh, Kashida has popularized the narrative that Ukraine today may be East Asia tomorrow since he first talked about it uh, at the Shangri-La Dialogue last year. I myself have a strong sense of urgency that Ukraine today may be East Asia tomorrow. Japan has also made the decision to shift its policy towards Russia and is united with the international community in efforts to impose strong sanctions against Russia and support Ukraine. As Prime Minister of the peace-loving nation of Japan, I have a responsibility to protect the lives and assets of the Japanese people and to contribute to a peaceful order in the region. But he repeated uh, many times uh, since, including during his visit to Ukraine, and then again this week at a domestic event. Uh, Many Chinese analysts uh, say part of the reason why Kashida is active on global stage, including Ukraine, is he tries to win support from Europe for his hawkish stance on confronting China. And it is also important to note Uh, Many of China's Asian neighbors trust Japan more than China now, based on multiple polls. 
despite Japan's colonial rule and wartime atrocities across the region. Japan is not only a key investor for them, an economic partner, but has actually become Southeast Asia's most trusted power for many years, which means Japan is more popular than the US, the EU, and China. But there's not much China can do, as many of its neighbors have openly or quietly made up their mind as to how to pick up a side in the US-China rivalry. Japan probably has done so a long ago, and now India, the Philippines, South Korea are showing signs of edging closer to the U.S. amid concerns about China. I assume Beijing knows it has lost Japan a while ago, so it's more worrying for them to see changes happening in other countries, especially in the Philippines and South Korea. Those middle and small powers neighboring China, including Vietnam and North Korea, simply know how to pit great powers against each other. And also, I think it remains to be seen what the future holds for Beijing's predicament, especially when its economic leverage card lost its shine. It's clear that China cannot afford to lose the support of its neighbors at the moment or punish them harshly as its all-around feud with Washington deepens. So if you speak about how Kishida is playing this very important role in East Asia and he's very much the quiet achiever, can I say, because not only is this kind of relationship changing uh, with China and, uh, you know, Kishida uh, inserting himself into the discussion physically uh, in in Kiev, he's also been part of this changing relationship with South Korea. Now, you know, China, South Korea, Japan, they have centuries of very complex history that has seemed to kind of you know, handcuff modern day politicians and how they relate to each other. But it seems to be there is some very, very interesting changes that Kishida is being part of with South Korea that are of great interest or concern to Beijing. Can you tell us more about that? I think it's a great question. It's always interesting to talk about history problems in the context of East Asia uh, geopolitics. Because I think the lingering history issue remains one of the most important and politically charged questions for leaders in this region. Obviously, there's there's no easy or quick fix, but you have to try if you are serious about making peace instead of war. There are multiple reasons why I wrote a column yesterday about this issue. Firstly, we have to understand that there is no perfect solution to those uh, long-lasting history problems. And efforts to redress historical injustices are often unpopular. Uh, according to opinion polls in South Korea, about 60% of South Koreans opposed the concessions uh, President Yoon made on the contentious forced labor dispute. And also, it's going to be a long, winding process to seek reconciliation. And there's no perfect solution once and for all. Just like the many territorial disputes China is currently dealing with, I think. Setting aside differences and pursuing joint development, as uh, China's uh, late paramount leader Deng Xiaoping put it, is probably still the best way ahead for the moment. I think political leaders should take responsibility and act on this issue, which is at heart of their fraught ties in this region. Given the risks of sleepwalking into an unintended military confrontation over the past and present grievances. I think it's high time for leaders in Beijing to have a rethink about its foreign policy. It's one thing to have this noisy tit-for-tat, Cold War-style ideological, economic, tech, and geopolitical confrontation with the U.S., but quite another 
antagonize and show inadequate respect for a lot of countries that have been caught in the middle of the U.S.-China rivalry and sometimes even use coercive economic, military, and political measures against them. To be fair, I think all three countries, uh, I mean, South Korea, Japan, and China, have their own history problems, respectively, to some extent. I'm not saying that Japan has done a good job in convincing its neighbors about its remorse, about its wartime past, or easing concerns about its ambition to rearm and become a regional political and military leader. Another reason I didn't mention in my column story uh, is that I think it's probably the best time for Chinese leader Xi Jinping to make some changes, just like Yun of South Korea did, if he wants to, after he secured his unprecedented, norm-breaking third leadership term. He's China's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong now, and he can do what he wants after his stunning consolidation of power. There's plenty of room for him to maneuver, as there's no opposition party in China, and he doesn't need to worry about being held accountable by public opinions. Well, Jiang Tao, of course, you give us an excellent perspective on where Xi Jinping finds himself in the history of China. As you say, he's the most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. He has the power to make any changes he wishes. This sort of brings me back to the very start of this podcast when we had Fimba Birmingham telling us that you know European leaders like Emmanuel Macron and Ursula von der Leyen think that Xi Jinping is surrounded by yes-men who are too scared to give him the reality of, of what's happening in Europe and the rest of the world. And that's why they are traveling personally to Beijing to deliver their message of reality to Xi Jinping. How do you think these visits will be received? What do you think of this, this attitude that Xi Jinping is surrounded by yes-men? I think it's an interesting perspective and uh, maybe partly true because I think there are a lot of concerns that uh, the Chinese leader, after his uh, consolidation of power, uh, he's surrounded by people who, uh, who are too loyal or too afraid to speak up their mind. It would be great if the Chinese leader... Uh, his concerns and uh, opinions uh, from foreign visitors. But that remains un- uncertain. I think the real reason why the European leaders want to go to China at the moment is they want to boost economic and trade ties with China as uh, amid uh, global economic uh, difficulties. I think for, for, for leaders in Europe and uh, many other nations that have been caught in the US-China rivalry, a balancing act is the best strategy ahead. While they may depend on the US for security, they still need China uh, on trade and economic ties. And like you, Xi Jinping, I wish I could be a fly on the wall to hear some of those discussions upcoming when Macron and Ursula land in Beijing and meet with Xi Jinping and, of course, his senior leadership team. Zheng Tao, thank you once more for your time. Thank you once more for your knowledge. Really appreciate it. We'll look for your analysis and pieces coming up on scmp.com. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jared. That's all in this very geopolitics-flavoured edition of Inside China. We've got some great stories coming to you in the coming weeks. We've been digging deeper into ChatGPT, as well as how the AI chatbot race continues to take off in mainland China. My colleagues in Beijing have been comparing ChatGPT with the new bot from Baidu. Oh, hi, Ernie. 
The global conversation is moving past, wow, what amazing things this technology can do, to some very, very serious discussion about how AI needs to be regulated. And there's been a huge amount of discussion and research done on that topic in mainland China. And Beijing's got some very clear ideas on how it should be making the rules on the new global standard for artificial intelligence. There's also a lot more to come on the story of China's falling birth rate, the generation of women who don't want to settle down and start families, and how the movement known as laying flat is evolving into something much more challenging for the Beijing central government. Don't forget, you can find us on the increasingly wobbly platform known as Twitter, as well as Facebook and Instagram. But remember, you'll always find the latest videos, news and analysis on SEMP.com. My name is Jared Watt. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.